Morning, everybody. I want to encourage you to turn over to the first chapter of John. We're going to continue through our series in the Gospel of John, and I hope you are uh, excited to learn more about our Savior together this morning. So we have been going through the prologue of John, the first 18 verses over the last couple weeks. We're going to move away from that and transition into the narrative of John, where he really begins to tell the story of Jesus. And so we're going to cover quite a few verses today. We're going to get through the whole rest of chapter 1. There's a lot there. And in order to cover it, I'm going to have to kind of skim over some things. And so I want to strongly encourage you, if you have the ability, to take some notes today. Because there's going to be some other scriptures I'm going to reference that I think would do you well to track down throughout the week as you get time. You guys have been so incredibly encouraging to me in the time that I've been here. Uh, But if you want some honesty from me, the thing I love more than anything else uh, is not a good job. It's questions. Or it's comments like, you made me think about this. Or I went and I studied this this week. I love that. It lets me know that I'm doing something here. And so I encourage you, take some notes and track this stuff down this week. I'm hoping to entice you into that through this lesson this morning. So we're going to get into the text, and as we cover this text, what I want to do is I want to look at it by framing it in a series of questions that we're going to ask. And every question is a question that begins with who. And I think that is really at the heart of John's gospel. He wants us, of course, to be asking the question, who is Jesus? We already talked about that when we introduced John's gospel. But there's other characters in the gospel besides Jesus. We're going to talk about some of them this morning. And so we're going to begin with John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Who was this man who was baptizing out in the wilderness, preaching repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Who was this guy exactly? And so the first question is, who was John the Baptist? In John chapter 1 and verse 18, you remember John ends the prologue by saying this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. And made him known specifically to us. So let's figure out exactly how that has happened. So first question, who is John the Baptist? In John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, so already back in the prologue, we're actually introduced to John. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So we've already been introduced to John in the prologue, but now we get into the story of John, as it were. So in John 1, 19 through 20, he continues on from the prologue, and the story of Jesus begins here with the story of John the Baptist. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Now why did they do that to begin with? Well, John is causing quite a scene in the wilderness of Judea, as he's preaching and baptizing people. It's interesting because some of the other Gospels include a lot of biographical information about John. His birth, what his preaching was really like, what his messages sound like, what he wore, what he ate. Remember, he was kind of an interesting guy, right? You remember he wore a coat made of what? Anybody remember? Wild camel hair, right? Which is, you know, I don't think probably the coolest thing in the world at the time. You remember what his diet was? What did he eat? Locusts and wild honey, right? Anybody up for that for lunch today? We'll go. There's a new spot in town serving locusts and wild honey. We'll go check it out, right? So he's kind of a, an oddity, and he's a fiery 
preacher and people were going out there wanting to hear what he was saying. It says lots of people were coming from Jerusalem and Judea to hear this man in the wilderness and they were being baptized by him. So he started to create a scene in the wilderness and the leaders in Jerusalem want to know what this is all about. And so they send this delegate of people from Jerusalem to find him out in the wilderness and just to ask him directly, who are you, John? Notice what John, the apostle, as he's writing this story, is doing. He's inviting us to ask this same question. Who is John the baptizer? So this was John's testimony when they came to him and asked him, who are you? And it says he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. And the way that we're introduced to John is not by an answer of who he is, but a series of answers where he says, I am not. I am not this, I am not this, and I am not this. And I think John does that on purpose to contrast to what we find from Jesus. Seven times throughout John's gospel, Jesus makes a statement, I am. And we're going to talk about those I am's as we get into the gospel further. You've got Jesus saying, I am. You've got John the Baptist saying what? I am not. Okay, and that contrast, I think, is purposeful. Because John's purpose is wrapped up entirely in elevating Christ not himself. In fact, famously later on, he would go on to say one of my favorite statements a human being has ever made. In reference to the popularity of Jesus, John would say, he must increase, I must decrease. I came to show you him. It's my turn to get out of the way, right? So John is saying, I am not the Messiah. Let me get it out of the way. First and foremost, I am not Messiah. I am not the anointed one. I am not the one you've been looking for. And so they ask him a follow-up question in verse 21. Okay, you're not the Messiah, so are you Elijah? And he said what? I am not. But I want you to understand where this question comes from to begin with. Why are they asking him the question, are you Elijah? If you look at the prophet Malachi, in the very end of that small book of Malachi, and coincidentally the way our Bibles are put together for us today, those are the last verses in what we call the Old Testament before the Gospel of Matthew begins. The last verses we're left with in the story of the Old Testament are these. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. See, and these are the words of God, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The people of Israel were expecting that before Messiah came, Elijah would return and usher in Messiah's appearance. And so that's why they're asking that question. If you look in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, this is one of those things you can track down on your own later. John's father is a priest serving the temple in Jerusalem. His name is Zechariah. And as his time comes up to go into the temple and, and offer an offering to God. As he's about to, uh, to do his priestly duty, an angel appears to him. And he says, you and your wife are about to have a son. And the angel begins to tell him who his son was going to be. And guess what passage the angel uses to help Zechariah understand the purpose of his son? It's this passage in Malachi. He's coming like Elijah. Now what's very interesting is even though John here denies and says, I'm not Elijah, later on in Matthew chapter 11, as Jesus is addressing the crowds talking about John the Baptist, he talks about there's no one greater 
born of women than John the Baptist, but anyone who's in the kingdom of heaven will be greater even than him. He talks about all that. But he ends by saying this. He says, if you are willing to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. And so what's going on? John's saying, I'm not Elijah. Jesus is saying he was Elijah. What's going on? Well, I think John is making the statement, I am not the physical reincarnation of Elijah the prophet. But what Jesus is saying is exactly what the angel told Zechariah. He's not Elijah come back from the grave, but he is the fulfillment of that promise made in Malachi that Elijah would come hearkening the coming of the Messiah. And so he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. So when they're asking him, they've got all of this confusion, all these questions in their mind. I'm not the Messiah and I'm not Elijah come back. So next question, are you the prophet then? There's been a lot of prophets in the history of God's people. What prophet exactly are they talking about? And again, John answers in the negative. No, I'm not the prophet. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, we find the same thing said twice. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Who's speaking there? Moses. Moses is telling them that there will come another prophet like me. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were going through our series in in Exodus chapters 32 through 34, how Moses served as an intercessor between God and his people, and how Jesus would serve that exact same role, only better, right? But there's going to be a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And again in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. This was something Israel was looking forward to, the fulfillment of that prophecy. Who would that prophet be that Moses was talking about? And especially at this time in Israel's history, with messianic expectation at its height, people were asking the question, who is that prophet and when is he going to come? And what we see when we work our way through the gospel is that later on as Jesus was performing signs in front of the people, it was causing them to ask that question. Is this the prophet Moses talked about? After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. That's from John 6 and 14. Skip over to John 7 and verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. So these Levites and priests from Jerusalem are just asking him flat out, are you the prophet that Moses told us to be looking for? And John says, no, I'm not the prophet. Coincidentally, later on, Acts chapter 3, Peter would stand up and he'd preach a sermon and he would tell the crowds that Jesus was that prophet that they were to be looking for. But John's job was to elevate Jesus not claim his responsibility or his identity to get out of the way and let Jesus shine. So we get to John chapter 1 and verse 22, and now they're kind of frustrated. And so they just ask him, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Okay, you've told us who you're not. You've got to give us an answer. Our bosses want to know. That's why they send us out here. Give us something to take back to Jerusalem with us. And so John replied, Now he's going to reply in the affirmative, enough about who I'm not, this is who I am. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, something all four gospel writers reference, so it must be important. How did John identify himself? I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. 
And if you go back to that reference from Isaiah chapter 40, you've got this beautiful image of mountains being lowered and valleys being raised. The idea is if you've got a place like Jerusalem where people want to get there to the Temple Mountain, they've got to go through valleys and they've got to travel through the treacherous desert and they've got to go over the mountains to get there. The idea is that there would be this one who would come that would make this easy road. He would make I-5 through the desert so that people could get to the dwelling place of God as easily as possible. And John is saying, that's who I am. I came to make a highway for Messiah. I've come to make it easier for you to find him. That's who John was. It says, now the Pharisees, now they've got their turn, so the Pharisees show up along with these priests and Levites. Now it's their turn to ask a question. The Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet? This is a question about authority. Again, John the Baptist is the son of a priest from Jerusalem. There is already a process through which people could get spiritually cleansed to be right before God. And all that took place through the priesthood serving at the temple in Jerusalem. So why is this rebellious son of a priest out in the wilderness circumnavigating that whole process, doing this on his own? Who, give, who gave him the authority to be out here preaching this message and baptizing people? It's a question of authority. And this is John's response. He says, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Notice what he does yet again. He redirects their attention away from him to Messiah who was going to come. Don't worry about what I'm doing. I'm just getting you ready for the one who comes after me. And what I want you to see here is that when it comes to answering the question, who is John, you cannot separate who John was from what John was called by God to do. John was a lot of things, but primarily he was the one sent to prepare the way for God's chosen one. And so that's who John the Baptist is. The next question we're introduced to in the text that follows is who is Jesus? Now, we're going to be asking this question all the way throughout the entire Gospel of John. And in the prologue, those first 18 verses, John has already gone a long way to answering that question for us. And in fact, I want you to see this. So on the left-hand side are some of the titles and terms already used to refer to Jesus in the prologue. The Word, God, the Light, the Only Son. Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. These are all terms already used to refer to John. But in the rest of chapter 1, we find this whole slew of other terms and names. Lamb of God, we just sang a song about it, right? We'll talk about it in just a second. Rabbi, which means teacher. Messiah, or Christ, both of them terms that refer to the idea of Jesus being the Anointed One, the, the one that God would send, talking about that king that would come and rule in Jerusalem. The one Moses wrote about. Son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, King of Israel. These are all terms used to refer to Jesus, and all of them are used by John to help us paint this picture of who Jesus was in our minds. But again, he wants us to start asking the question here, because that's exactly what John came to do, to show us who Jesus was. And so who is Jesus in the context of John the Baptist's preaching? So the next day, it says in John 1, 29 through 31, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, 
the Lamb of God. He's going to say it again in a few verses. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because, I was bef- because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. John is making it clear that God sent him for a purpose. To teach people who Messiah was and to point him out when he came. And John says, I didn't even know exactly who he was, but God showed him to me during the baptism that I was practicing in the wilderness. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But now Jesus shows up and he says unequivocally, look, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of of the world. Again, you cannot separate the question of who Jesus was from who God sent him to be or or what God sent him to accomplish. He is the Lamb of God. What did God send him to do? Take away the sins of the world, right? And John is pointing this out to the people. This is the guy I was telling you about. This is kind of surprising in a way. This use of Lamb of God imagery to describe Jesus as the Lamb of God Do you mean to tell me that God is going to conquer sin and evil, banish the darkness, and rescue his good creation through something as weak and vulnerable as a lamb? Yes, that's exactly what John is telling us. That's exactly what God was going to do through the person of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of images and a lot of titles and a lot of descriptive phrases used of Jesus in the scripture. This is one of the most powerful This Lamb of God image. It is surprising in a way, but in another way it's not surprising at all because this is leaning into imagery we find throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture there's this image of a lamb and what God does with a lamb in order to bring an end to sin. And by the way, we don't have a lot of time to get into this this morning, but if you go back to December of this last year, there was a lesson we did looking at the book of Revelation called uh, The Lamb That Was Slain. Because one of the ways Jesus is introduced to us in the book of Revelation is as a lamb covered in its own blood, a lamb that was slain. So if you want to dig deeper into this imagery, go back and find that lesson, and you can learn more about it there. But, but quickly, what imagery is this leaning into? Exodus chapter 12, the Passover. There's the lamb sacrificed, and then the blood of that lamb was smeared on the doorpost so that God's angel would pass over the children of God and destroy only the Egyptians, preparing them for God's release from bondage. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember that gut-wrenching story where Abraham takes his own son to the top of the mountain? He's ready to sacrifice him. And Isaac, being perceptive, says, Father, I see wood and I see the altar, but what's missing? The lamb. And you remember what Abraham says to him? He says, don't worry, God will provide a lamb for himself. And of course that has to do with what happens immediately following, where they find a ram stuck by its horns in a thicket and they're able to sacrifice it. But what do you think that's really looking forward to? Christ. And then you get the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, which is the backdrop for what we find in Acts chapter 8 when Uh, Philip has an opportunity to study with the Ethiopian eunuch, this man who was in Jerusalem traveling back home through the desert, and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, happens to be reading from Isaiah 53, 
what is happening in Isaiah 53, the messianic figure is described to us in surprising terms again. This suffering servant, not a conquering king, although he was, but a suffering servant who again would take on our sins. And it's, he's talked about in terms like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And a sheep before its shears is silent. That's what Jesus would do for us. So John is saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, because that imagery was something they should have understood, although they wouldn't fully until he took the cross. So let me get to verses 32 and 34. John gave the testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Here's what I want you to see. John is connecting what he was doing by baptizing people with God identifying Jesus as his anointed one. John says, I didn't even know who he was until God showed him to me. Now we know from the other gospels that, John, that Jesus went to John to be baptized himself. And when John baptized him, what happened? Do you remember the story? A voice came down from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And what else? The spirit descended on him like a dove. John doesn't record that event, but he's referencing it here. So John says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And that's an essential part of John's account here is that he saw the Spirit come down on Jesus and stay on Jesus. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Don't miss this fact. What is John the Baptist, Baptist saying? He's saying, God told me that the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains on is God's anointed one. And John is saying, that man is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. I witnessed this take place. And this imagery of the Spirit not just descending on Jesus, but remaining on Jesus, again is tapping into images from promises that God made to his people prior to this. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Sometime we'll do a series on Jubilee and its connection to Jesus. It's beautiful imagery. But the point here is, as we look forward to Messiah coming, the Spirit is going to descend on him, it's going to anoint him, and it's going to stay there. Jesus himself uses this imagery. In Luke chapter 4, he's in his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he grabs a scroll, and he begins reading from that exact passage. And then you know what he says? He rolls up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everybody in the synagogue are fastened on him. What is he going to say next? And this is what he said. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. There is this imagery in the Old Testament of God anointing people with his spirit. Think about David and some of the kings. As, as uh, the prophet uh, Samuel is sent to anoint David as the next king. We find him, he's just a shepherd boy, right? He's the least expected of all his siblings. But he finds him, he anoints him, and it says God's spirit descended on David. The very next verse in that narrative, God's spirit leaves Saul, and he's tormented by an evil spirit instead. 
God sending his spirit as anointing has everything to do with God singling out people for service in his kingdom. And John is saying, I watched God anoint Jesus with his spirit. And that spirit is staying on him, proving that he is the one that I told you I came to prepare you for. This is what John's testimony is all about. Third question, who are the disciples? Okay, well, we know them by name here in this passage. We're introduced to four of them specifically. Andrew, Simon Peter, or also called Cephas, this is Andrew's brother, and then Philip, and then Nathaniel. We're introduced to all of them. I'm going to read through this text quickly in just a minute because we don't have a lot of time to get into it. But in verses 35 through 39, we find this. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, here he is again, look, the Lamb of God. And if you want to know if John did his job of preparing people to follow Jesus, here's your answer. Okay, because he says that, what do his two disciples do? The two disciples heard him say this, they turned, and they did what? They followed Jesus. John did his job. He prepared them for understanding who Jesus was and then following Jesus. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, we talked about this a few weeks ago, what do you want? The NIV has it pointedly. Or more specifically, what are you looking for? Why, you, why are you interested in following me? This is their response. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the whole day with him because it was about four in the afternoon. This is one of those things you just read over and you might not think anything of it, but I'm convinced this is, this is the part of this whole narrative we're supposed to zero in on is this interaction between Jesus and his first followers. As Jesus begins to form a community of disciples and learners and followers around him, these are the first ones, and something beautiful and powerful and significant is happening here. And this is what it is. The disciples might not have known exactly what they were looking for yet. They were disciples of John, so they knew they were waiting for someone but they wouldn't fully understand who Jesus was and what he came to accomplish until after the resurrection, when he would open their eyes to understand scripture. They just knew they were looking for Messiah. And when John points them out, that's all it took. They turned and they followed him. They might not have known what they were looking for, but here's the key. They knew exactly where to find it in the person of Jesus. And so there's something significant in this question. Where are you staying? What are they saying? They're saying that even as naive as they might have been in that moment, they knew where they needed to be. They needed to be wherever Jesus was. Tell us where you are so we can be there with you. And that's the beginning of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to have that desire to be with him. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Okay, so let's pick up, and let me just read quickly through the rest of the text here. So we get to... Verse 40, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did, I love this, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which means, when translated, Peter. Now quickly, this is kind of a tangent, but I, I want to point this out, because it's just one of those neat things that, that illustrates the intimacy between Jesus and the people who followed him. Jesus was a guy who liked to give nicknames, and he gives one here, right? We know he gave it to 
John and James, the sons of Zebedee, you remember what their nickname was? Sons of Thunder, right? Which must have had something to do with their fiery personality. Those aren't the only nicknames we read about in Scripture. There was Thomas, who was called the Twin. Fill in the blanks. I guess you can figure out why he was called the Twin. There's two James. One of them, we know, was called James the Less or James the Younger because that's what happens, right? I'm a person who has, in my lifetime, had way too many nicknames. I grew up in a house where my parents thought it would be cute to name all three of their sons J names. Jason, James, and Josh, right? So my dad would get mad, of, mad at us when we were all three doing something and apparently forget what he named us, and he would go, and then he'd finally just point and say, you, right? So my parents took to giving us nicknames, so they would call me J-Boy and J-Bird and stuff like that, right? Endearing names, fine. Then I go to school, and apparently when my parents decided to name me Jason, every other uh, group of parents in my hometown decided to name their sons Jason as well. My little... My little a school that I grew up in, my little hometown, five of us named Jason. So none of us got to actually go by Jason. We all had nicknames our teachers gave us throughout the years to identify us, right? Some of them would just call me by my last name. Some of them would call me Hags, Hagee. They were all kinds of stupid nicknames that I picked up throughout the years. I hated every one of them. Only good nickname I ever got was the name I gave myself when I was a kid. For some reason, I used to call squirrels Mousamunkas. I don't know why. But I referred to myself as the Mousamunka boy. I just, I love that nickname. So if you're looking for a nickname for me now, I still, Mousamunka boy is right, right at the top of my list, right? But nicknames are necessary sometimes. I'm still dealing with it. Come here, find out there's another Jason in the elders, right? Which is why collectively we've decided that I will just go by Jason and he will go by Jason the much, much older. So that's his nickname <laughs> from now on. So it's an easy way to differentiate us, right? But I just want you to think, how cool would it be to be given a nickname by Jesus, right? What, what are nicknames really? They're, they're signs of affection, right? And you get these nicknames. And not only a nickname, but Peter got, let's be honest, the coolest nickname in the history of the world. Because what does Cephas and Peter mean? The Rock, right? Long before Dwayne Johnson, there was Simon. <laughs> the Rock, right? It's just a cool thing. And I love the intimacy that it illustrates there. Okay, verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can any good thing come from there? Nathanael asks. This is a powerful word about our expectations, doesn't it? Come and see, Philip said. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael asked, shocked, shocked, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you, will, while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Think about how much work it takes to get some people to believe in Jesus. All it took for him was saying, I saw you under the fig tree. And he's ready to declare him. Rabbi, Son of God, King of Israel. But then Jesus says something interesting at the end here. And I'm going to leave you with just a couple thoughts. Jesus said to Nathanael, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he says, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And people forever have been trying to figure out what in the world was Jesus talking about? Is that some kind of reference to his baptism when the voice came down out of heaven and the spirit descended like a dove? It could be. But I would suggest to you 
that what Jesus is doing here is actually taking us back to Genesis chapter 28 and a vision that Jacob had. Jacob is on the run from his own brother who wants to kill him because he stole the birthright from him. And he's on his way to where his uncle lives. And Jacob stops to sleep in the wilderness and he grabs a stone and he makes it his pillow and he has a dream. And in that dream, there's a ladder. You remember the story? Descends from earth to where? To heaven. And what does he see taking place on the ladder? But angels coming down and going up, back and forth, from heaven to earth. And Jacob wakes up and it says this. He thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't know it. He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he names that place Bethel, which means the house of God. What was Eden? Eden was the place where God dwelt among his creation. It was this gateway between heaven and earth. What was the tabernacle? Place where God dwelt on earth. It was this gateway between heaven and earth. What was the temple? The same thing. I think Jesus is taking Nathaniel and all of us here to this place to make a bold statement. That the dwelling place of God is no longer a place. It's a person. Jesus is saying, I am that place where God comes and dwells among you. And he's going to be even more bold in the next chapter when he talks about the temple and refers to his own body as the temple. As you seek out the dwelling place of God, you don't need to find it in a geographical location. You find it in the person of Jesus. And it's that that I want you to zero in on as we bring this lesson to a close. One last question. Who are we? Who we are is determined by our divine vocation. What do I mean by that? By the job God gave us. By what God has asked us to do. Take your minds back to Genesis. Go back to the garden. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates humans. And he creates them in his image. Male and female, he creates them. We're given the answer to who we are as human beings. We are image bearers of our God. But then you go to chapter 2, he puts those humans in the Garden of Eden, and guess what he does? He gives them a job to do what? To keep the garden, to tend it and to keep it. So we know who they are, but who they are is defined by the work God gave them to do, their divine vocation. The same is true for John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? The son of a priest? Yes. But who he is is primarily defined by the work God gave him to do. And what was the work God gave him to do? To make straight a path for the way of the Lord. To show people who Messiah was. Who was Jesus? One with the Father? Yes. Eternal in nature? Yes. The Word incarnate? Yes. But He was the Lamb of God. And the work God gave Him to do was to what? To be the Lamb of God that would do what? Take away the sins of the world. That was His divine vocation. You look at these earliest apostles. What is it that God has called them to do? These are fishermen. These are tax collectors. These are normal Jewish guys. But they were given something to do. What are those two words that we find? Follow me. Follow me. If you are just beginning to explore the identity of Jesus Christ this morning, if you are here because you are interested in learning more about Jesus and you want to know what it is God has called you to do, it begins with these two words. Just follow Jesus. Have that same desire those early disciples did that wherever Jesus is, you're going to find him and you're going to plant himself there because he 
is where you will find God. Follow me, he asked those disciples. And he asked the same thing of us today. If you're already a disciple of Jesus and you've pledged your life to him, what's next? Well, do what Andrew did for his brother. Do what Philip did for his friend. And go tell people, we have found the Messiah. Come and see. Those are our divine vocations. And they define who we are in a world where people are struggling so greatly with identification. How do I identify myself? Who am I? And the world is offering a million ways to answer that question. God gives us one primary way to answer that question. Who are we? And who are we is defined by what he has called us to do. We are called to follow Jesus. I apologize, the text got a little wonky here. In Psalm 27, verse 4, David writes this, and I think it's amazing. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. If that's your desire, find Jesus and stay with him and you will see the beauty of the Lord. One last passage and the lesson's yours. John chapter 17 and verse 24. That beautiful prayer Jesus gives right before he's betrayed, thinking only of his disciples after he's gone. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. If your desire today is to be where Jesus is, then you're ready to follow him and take those first steps as a disciple. If you're ready to make that decision this morning, let's talk, let's study, and let's grow together. What can we do to serve you as you learn from Jesus? What can we do to help you become a disciple? What can we do for you this morning? Let us know. Let's stand. Let's sing this final song. If there's anything we can do for you, come forward and let me know. Let's stand and sing. Amen.